This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. Red Letter Studies, Chapter 9, I believe is where we left off. But it's been a couple of weeks, so we're going to refresh our memories a little bit and start around verse 10, where Jesus said, well, the, Jesus doesn't say this, but the Bible says this, and it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? And there's a lot you can start deriving just out of the narrative right off the bat. First of all, Jesus was there first. He was already sitting down eating lunch. You know, people do that. They go to places, they buy food, they eat it. It's what humans do. And Jesus was every bit human. And he was there and he was eating his lunch. Well, what does the narrative say? It says that, Behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and with his disciples. So it's not like Jesus sought out a pack of sinners and put himself in the middle to eat with them, hoping that he would influence them. These were people who, even though they were publicans, and we remember what publicans were, those were the native Roman employed tax collectors that worked for the Roman oppressors. These were kind of like the quislings of Jesus's day, okay? Even though they were publicans and hated by the people, even though they were sinners and living contrary to the law of Moses, even though these were not good people, even by social definitions, they sought Jesus out. When they showed up at the restaurant or whatever it was that he was at, when they showed up at the market or whatever, and Jesus was there eating, they saw Jesus, they recognized Jesus, and they chose to sit down with him. They chose to sit down with Jesus's disciples. Now, what does that say? What's that say to you? That says to me is they wanted to be near him. They wanted to be near Jesus. They wanted to be close to him. They wanted to be in proximity with him. And that means something that indicates appetite. That indicates appetite, wanting to hear what he has to say, because maybe they didn't like being sinners but they didn't really know. Maybe they'd been disillusioned by uh, the Judaism of that day because we know that it had been corrupted and perverted from what it originally was. We know what the Pharisees and the Sadducees had done with the law of Moses. They pumped it full of a bunch of additional commandments and, and rigid strictures that, that uh, tended to oppress far more than it tended to liberate. Like any church that has a battery of rules without any scriptural backup. Rules are great sometimes, maybe, but discernment is better, amen? Knowing why we do what we do. Well, anyway, there's a whole teaching in that in, in, in itself. So many publicans and sinners came and sat down with Jesus and sat down with his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, there's another thing you can pick up on right there. They said to his disciples, they didn't say it to Jesus. These were gutless Pharisees. They said it to his disciples. You know, like people that, that come and say things to you when they have some kind of a gripe against me. 
Not that I'm Jesus, but you know what I'm saying. It's a leadership issue. It's a leadership issue. That someone's got a problem with something that the preacher says, what do they do? They vent their disgust into the ears of the church members. Thanks so much. You know, why not bring it to the preacher? Why not bring it to the preacher if, if, if they've got an issue with something that's preached or with something that's taught? Well, they don't want to bring it to the preacher. And there's different reasons for that. But a lot of times it's because they know that their heart is not perfect on the issue. Their heart is not perfect. They're bitter. They're offended or something along those lines. And so they go to everybody else in the church. I can't believe they hate that. How dare he say that? That's just outrageous that he would say such a thing. Really? We're going to be disciples. There's something that we've got to get victory over. And the sooner that we do, the better. And as we've got to get victory over offense. Now, I think that was, I think that was even, that was even, that was the core of a, of a Thursday night message preached just within the last month, wasn't it? We preached unoffended. Okay. But that was the core of that message was being unoffended. And for a disciple of our Lord Jesus, the, the sooner that we get the victory over the trap of personal offense, the better off that we'll all be. And one of the things that helps with that is when you stand on the absolute assurance that God wants what's good for us. Jesus wants what's good for us. The Holy Ghost wants what's good for us. Okay, and then, all right, now I'm moving outside of the Trinity the pastor wants what's good for us. And there is nothing said from this pulpit. There's nothing preached nor taught from this pulpit. And I think I can vouch for his motives also, Reverend Ryder's motives. There is nothing preached or, or taught from this pulpit that is ever shared with the intent to harangue or offend or brutalize or bully anyone. We are not that kind of church. Now we preach and we teach with conviction and we do it with passion because we believe in it, we stand on it, we build our lives on it, and we believe that everybody ought to embrace it. And if we didn't believe that, we ought not to be here. We need to make some reverent, we need to make some phone calls and have Graham send somebody else because we have become mealy-mouthed, wimpy, wet bread, soggy, nasty, no spine, bloodless preachers who don't even believe what they say themselves. You know what I mean? And there's a lot of preachers in the world that are just like that. And there are people that don't even go to church. They believe in God, but they refuse to go to churches because they're convinced that the preachers don't even believe what they say themselves. We're not going to be of that breed. But there isn't a single thing that's ever shared from this pulpit that is delivered with a harmful or a hurtful intent, even a reproof, even a rebuke. And the Bible tells us to do that, doesn't it? Tells us to tells a pastor to rebuke so that all may fear, not so that we can hurt people's feelings. That is not the that is not the end goal. It's not even the vehicle but so that other people can learn from someone else's bad judgment. You know, that way you're not rebuking a whole bunch of people. Only maybe one person might get rebuked. But if you've been here for any length of time, you know there's not a whole lot of that goes on. In fact, I don't think I've ever called anybody out here, have I? I don't think I ever have. So 
personal offense is a Christian killer. It's a faith killer. It's a spirituality killer. And it'll, it'll, it'll absolutely, it'll absolutely open a door. If a person takes personal offense to things that are taught or shared, then we forget to either a greater or lesser extent. And I'm being very careful how I, how I describe this. We forget to whatever extent that what is being said is not being said to harm. You know what I'm saying? And I'm not even saying that is all preamble to, oh man, he's must got something, he's got something big in his pocket. He's getting ready to draw on us. No, no, not at all. This is a Bible teaching tonight. And I don't have anything up my sleeves. You can look for yourselves. Okay. We're just teaching the truth in love. And you can see all the lessons that can be extracted by such a small portion of Scripture. So the Pharisees saw all these publicans and sinners sitting down with our Lord, and they found fault. First, they found fault in their heart. They found fault in their minds. And then they vocalized it not to the master himself, but to the master's disciples. Because it's always easier to attack the students than it is to attack the teacher. It's always easier to attack them because they're not always, although many of them are very, very skillful. So many of them are not as skillful as the one teaching because that's the nature of things. A teacher ought to know more or he, or he ought not to be teaching. So moving on, he says, why, why eateth your, ma your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. And I will, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We taught that at some length a couple of weeks ago, so we won't completely repave that. But those first few verses, or those first couple of verses, 10 and 11, really kind of jumped out at me. The sort of the details behind the scenes there or, or the setting that, this, that the teaching takes place in. And that reminds me, that reminds me, if you'll suffer me to rabbit trail for just a second. Um, it occurred to me as I was preparing the Bible study tonight, as I was preparing it, it, it popped into my head that I've been teaching these red letter studies under a false presumption. I'm going to clarify that, okay? Now, I'm not saying false teaching, but a false presumption. When I first opened these studies, I opened it with, uh, with a lengthy preamble, I believe, that... The teachings of Jesus, which is to say the words he spoke, the teachings that he taught with his words, that those could be taught apart from, although, you know, you, take, you have to read it all and understand it all within the historical narrative of the Gospels, okay? But they could be taught uh, kind of apart from the actions of his life, which are described in the, in the narrative of the Gospels. Are you tracking me so far? That was kind of... Uh, the presumption that I had at the beginning of these teachings, but it struck me that that really isn't the case. That really isn't the case. And this kind of, not long after a series of messages about the rebuilding of the temple and what was done first, the altar and the laying of the foundation, and then, then they built the building, you know, and how that all relates to us spiritually, that Jesus Christ is the foundation of our lives. And that it, first the altar, his blood upon the altar of our hearts and so on. But then then Jesus is laid as the foundation of our lives upon which we build the whole spiritual house that is our lives. We remember that 
that was kind of a big deal a couple of months ago. At least it was to me. I don't know if it stuck as much of a big deal in everybody else's minds, but it always sticks as a big deal in the preacher's mind. And But if Jesus is our foundation, everything about Jesus is our foundation. Not just the words that he said. You cannot divide and completely separate, remove his teachings from his identity or from his manner of life, what he did and how he did it. And that leapt out at me in these sparse chapters that we're going through right now. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 was all solid red letters. The Sermon on the Mount. Tons of magnificent teaching in there. But then after that, chapter 8, chapter 9, there's a lot of Jesus going here, Jesus going there, Jesus uh, touching a person, healing them, casting out demons, raising someone from the dead. Well, all of that is part of who Jesus is. And therefore, all of that is part of the foundation of our lives. And therefore, all of that ought to be part of our red letter studies. We might even have to rename the studies. It goes beyond the red letters. It goes beyond just the red letters. So, well, I think you're catching at straws, preacher. I really think that you're really just splitting hairs. Maybe I am, but it was important enough for me to take note. I wanted to share that with you tonight. So, publicans and sinners. Jesus answered them. They that be whole don't need a physician. They that are healthy don't need a doctor. If your spine's straight and strong, you don't need a chiropractor. Okay? What does that mean? The teaching here is very clear. It's very clear. Jesus identifies the entire human race as sick with sin. Sick with sin. And he even, he even interpreted that to the to, he even interpreted that for them here, at least to an extent in verse 13. He said, I'm not called, I'm not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, you Pharisees think you have it all put together. You're not going to listen to me anyway. But these guys, these spiritually broken publicans that are viewed as traitors to their country and these sinners that aren't even trying to live according to the law, these guys, they need a doctor. And that's why I'm here. And by the way, Pharisees, they came to me. They came to me. And that ties into our, to our opening lesson tonight. Let's move on. Verse 14. Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast off, but thy disciples fast not? And we didn't dig too deeply into this, and I'm not going to dig very deeply into it now. Not because there isn't good stuff in it, but because there's more good stuff that I want to get to. And because we can, we can jump back to this another time as we get later into the Gospels. Because I believe this will tie into some of Jesus' end time teachings. Uh, at least peripherally. So Jesus answered concerning why his own disciples weren't really practicing fasting. He said, can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days, the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. His point there was, why fast when the Lord is with you? Why fast when Jesus is in your presence, or rather you're in his presence? Why fast? 
Fasting is so often associated with mourning, and even when it's not associated with uh, mourning, as in a tragedy or something like that, it's associated, it's asso it has negative associations a lot of times. Not always, I'm not saying that it's inherent to it. It just tends to ride along in the same wagon with it. When people are struggling under a burden, and they're trying to get victory over top of that thing, or whatever it is, they're in a battle. And a lot of times they'll fast for whatever reason. They're trying to bring their flesh under subjection, or they're fasting under the mistaken the mistaken notion that fasting makes them more powerful it does not it does not we talked about that i think we talked about that at length power comes from god power comes from the holy ghost living in you that's where power comes from you can't get any more power than the holy ghost so how is denying your body food going to get you more power it doesn't it doesn't. That's not the spiritual nitrous, you know, that you hit on your hot rod to, to win a drag race. Praying in the Holy Ghost is your nitrous. Why? Why fast when you have the Lord there? Why fast? But he said that the day was coming when the bridegroom would be taken away from them. Well, that certainly was fulfilled. This was a this was not a long term prophecy here. The days were coming. They would come in just three short years or whenever it was within his ministry that he spoke these words. When Jesus was taken from them, he was taken, he was tried, he was crucified, died, then he was buried. Yes, he returned, he rose from the grave, arose, but then he had to leave from the, he had to leave again and return to the Father. But even then, he wasn't, even though he was taken away, he didn't leave us without comfort. He sent the Holy Ghost. He sent the Holy Ghost to the church, to individual believers in the church. And that's a that's a critical distinction to make because the indwelling of the Holy Ghost, I'm sure every one of us in here knows, the indwelling of the Holy Ghost is an intensely and a profoundly personal experience. It is not a default experience when a person joins a church or even accepts Christ as Savior. Well, I thought that I accepted Christ as Savior. Yes, you did. But that's what you did. You accepted Christ as Savior. Accepting Christ as Savior is not receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Now, this is what you know, will get, a lot, get us labeled Pentecostals by a lot of people. And that's fine. If somebody wants to call us that, I'm not going to balk at it over much. Because we do very much believe in that. And that's a core tenet of Pentecostalism, if you will. All right. But we prefer to wear the title Christian because it's all about Christ. And, you know, the sum total of the Christian experience is not all wrapped up in that one experience of the Holy Ghost baptism. Important and critical as it is, it's not the same as salvation, is it? Because if a person's not born again, you can't have the Holy Ghost. You cannot receive the Holy Spirit if you have a life that's filled with sin. That experience is reserved for born-again believers only. So we stand on that. And we stand on the other as well. But you, you, you can't. You can't stand on the one apart from salvation. Amen? Yeah. All right, well, let's move on from that. He was clarifying about fasting. And then he goes on to say in verses 16 and 17, he says, No man puts a new piece of cloth into an old garment, for that which is put in it will put in to fill it up, taketh up the garment, or taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. In other words, that new cloth gets washed, then it shrinks, and then it makes the tear worse than it was. 
You gotta put old cloth into an old garment if you're gonna make a patch. That's why so many old patched, you don't see patched clothing in America anymore, like ever, ever. And it was almost a bygone thing when I was a small child. So it's, it's, if you see it at all, it's a style thing now. But, but then he uses another metaphor making the same point. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break and the wine runneth out and the bottles perish. Notice he didn't care, notice he didn't care much about the wine. Because wine that expands and bursts a bottle, if it's put into an old bottle, is fermented and rotten and no good anyway. It's no good for it's no good for anything but an antiseptic. I I will stand on that. I'm not backing down from that. Booze doesn't have any place in a believer's life. Although that's not the primary teaching here that Jesus is talking about. He says the bottles break and the bottles perish. So you lose a perfectly good what would be a water bottle. You lose a perfectly good uh, uh, bottle. But they put new wine into new bottles and both are preserved because if the wine does age before it is consumed, then it'll expand. But as a new bottle made out of new hide, never been used for anything, it'll expand right along with it. That's what leather does. If you're ever in the Air Force or the Army or any branch of the military and you bought a brand new pair of boots and they were just crazy tight on your feet and stiff and uncomfortable, what they always told us to do was put your boots on and then go take a shower in them. So that's kind of weird. Well, yes, it's weird, but it's also practical and useful because as you're taking a shower, your boots are getting soaking wet and then that leather will stretch and it will conform to your feet. There's a lesson in there. Well, here, it's new wine and new bottles. All right, so old feet and new boots. Go take a shower in them. And you meditate on that and see how you can tie it together into a useful teaching. Other than what Jesus talked about. Let's move on from that. I'm making light of it because I want to get on to the newer stuff. While he spake these things unto them, verse 18. Behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter even now is dead. But come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. And Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. Now let's actually stop right there. That's one paragraph. Well, there's no red letters in that paragraph. Yes, but this ties back to what I was just saying. In the, the teachings of Jesus, you also have to teach his actions. You've got to learn his actions. Because his actions were filled with lessons, not just his words. And that sets him apart from so many philosophers in ages gone by. And so many great teachers and philosophers in ages gone by in other cultures and so on. It sets him apart because he lived a life. He didn't just teach words. He lived a life. And he demonstrated in power who he was. And, and the validity and the efficacy of the things that he had to say. So what do we take from just these two verses? While he spake these things, there came, behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him. Okay, well, what did Jesus not do? He didn't tell him, hey, don't worship me. And this was, and you can take this as a believer in faith, you can take this as further support for the divinity of Christ. Jesus never refused worship. The angels would. The angels would. But Jesus, being God, would not. Why would he? Why would he? As God, the Son of God, of course he would accept worship. We worship God all the time and we understand God to be a trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God in three persons as the old hymn uh, sings. Uh, blessed Trinity. Amen. So Jesus accepted that worship. And the ruler said, 
my daughter even now, my daughter is even now dead. It's not, it wasn't a case of she's sick, come and heal her before she dies. Hurry, we got to beat the clock as it was with Lazarus or, or, or the friends of Lazarus, the brother, excuse me, the sister of Lazarus, Lazarus. It wasn't like that. She was already dead. All had already been lost. Everything had already been lost. The guy's life had already burned to the ground. His daughter, I can't fathom what that's like. I got one. I got one. And I can't imagine if she died. I can't imagine what that, what that would feel like. And it's always an incredibly traumatic experience when a loved one dies at all. But it's, I've heard it over and over again. It's particularly, it's particularly devastating to a parent because a parent should never have to bury their child. Children are supposed to bury their parents. And so it's a real reversal on the natural order of things. But he said, my daughter even now is dead, but come and lay thy hand on her and she shall live. The ruler did not blame God. You, you see that in his attitude. He came to Jesus. He didn't come to Jesus panicking. He didn't come to Jesus completely wrought with anxiety, hair turning white, bare knuckled, white knuckled, and just coming apart at the seams. He came to Jesus, I imagine, broken, but with a faint light of hope because he'd heard, he'd heard. And that's the best that a lot of people could do is hear. But that's where it all begins, isn't it? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Man, some people never know any hope in their lives until they hear the right thing from the word of God at the right moment and it turns on all the lights of hope and they make a beeline for the cross or they make a beeline for the altar or they just make a beeline to God, whatever it is that their need is. Well, that's what this guy did. He didn't blame God. Instead, he worshiped him. Perfect example for every living human being, especially we who are Jesus' disciples. He worshiped him and then he confessed his faith in Jesus's power. He confessed his faith. He said, my daughter even now is dead or is even now dead, but come and lay thy hand on her and she might live. No, that wasn't his wording. Remember, the language is important. Language is important. He said, and she shall live. And then what do we, what do we read happened right there in verse nine? Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. Now, we know that Jesus didn't have to go and actually lay his hand on his daughter because we read other places in Scripture. The centurion, for example, who said, come, my servant is, or he didn't even say come, he just said, my servant is sick, he's dying, whatever. Just speak the word. I'm not even worthy for you to come into my house. Just speak the word, and I know that he'll be healed. And what did Jesus do? Jesus obliged that centurion according to the, con to the conditions that the centurion set, didn't he? Not because Jesus is subject to our conditions, but because Jesus was honoring his faith as his faith was expressed and as it stood, right? Does that stand to reason? Because he did the same thing here. The guy didn't tell him, just say the word. The guy said to him specifically, come, lay your hand on her and she will live, all right? His faith is that I come and lay my hand on her and she'll live. I'm going to answer him according to his faith. There was no failing there. There was no failing there at all. The man came, the man worshiped, the man confessed, and, and the confession was of belief. Okay, it was a confession of belief. And Jesus answered 
He answered it. No questions asked. He didn't ask, he didn't put him through 20 questions. Well, what did your daughter have? How'd she die? Was she being irresponsible? Was she somewhere she shouldn't have been? What did you and your mom, or did you and her mom fail in some area? Did you not take care of her like you should have? Well, you're a horrible person. That wasn't Jesus's character. See how much you can get out of so little? I mean, you could do this all day. There's so much to be taken from it. And it's not just made up stuff. This is all worth, worthy of meditation. Jesus arose and, arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. There's a teaching in there too. We'll move on. Verse 20. Now this is in the midst of the teaching begun here in verse 18. Okay, this kind of happens in the middle of it at verse 20. And behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood 12 years came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, if I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. This is more of the same. This is more of the same, but this was a little bit different scenario. This is a woman who's sick herself. It's much more personal with her, at least in far it's insofar as that goes. She was sick, not a family member. And not only was she sick, she'd been sick 12 years. More preachers have preached messages about this woman whose name we don't even know. An issue of blood lasting more than a decade. I can't imagine dealing with any kind of an affliction that lasted a decade other than allergies. And that was bad enough. But, you know, that was only once a year. And, and then God took care of that by, by, his, by his grace, by his mercy. But here she was afflicted with something, had been afflicted with something for a very, very long time. It had affected her. It, it affected virtually every single aspect of her life. Now, let's actually break this down for a minute. I, well, man, we're out of time. But let, can we finish this part of the teaching and then we'll wrap it up? I don't want to just chop it off in the middle of this part. All right. Let's look at what this woman actually had to deal with. She was a Jew in a Jewish society. What were you if you were a Jew in a Jewish society living under the law? What were you if you had an issue of blood? Because you know what this referred to. It wasn't a cut on her hand. This had to do with things that are particular to women. Well, what you were, if you had an issue of blood, is you were permanently in a state of menstruous, if you will. There, I said it. Shocker. Okay. But it also meant that by the word of God, by the law of Moses, you were ritually unclean. All right. Now, right, wrong, fair or unfair is all beside the point. And I'm not going to presume to judge the law of Moses. It, it was from God. Therefore, it was good. We're not under it, so we don't have to worry about it. But that meant that she was always for 12 years she was in a state of ritual uncleanness she could not participate in the feasts. she couldn't participate in hardly anything at all where the law was concerned she had to if she was abiding by the law she had to dwell apart from her family if she had any she had to dwell apart from them probably in a I don't know if it was actually a red tent or it was referred to them as the red tent or whatever. Uh, I haven't really dug into it that deep. But she had to dwell apart in a separate place because she was considered unclean. Twelve years ritually outcast. You tell me that doesn't have an effect on your thinking, on your sense of self-worth, okay, on your self-esteem. Well, I'm not a big fan of that, of that, of that phrase, self-esteem. But it definitely has a negative impact on your self-worth. You're definitely questioning if whether or not God has forsaken you. The Bible had told tells us in other of the Gospels that she had spent all of her living on physicians, on doctors to try and fix that. You know, 
the frustration of a person that spends a lot of money on doctors who just look at you and say, I don't know what's wrong with you. Beats me. That's how much this had affected her. Ritually unclean 12 years. Bankrupt from having spent all of her living or virtually bankrupt from having spent all of her living on doctors and not only was not any better, but was actually worse. Makes you wonder what those doctors were doing. Here, let me take your money and throw some leeches on you or something. I mean, I don't know what passed for, for medicine in ancient Israel. Maybe it was good. Maybe it was bad. I don't really know. I wasn't there and I can't judge because it's just, I just don't know. But that's the state that she was in. But here she said within herself, verse 21, if I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. Where did this faith come from? Where did this, this degree of faith come from that she, well, the same way, the same place that it came from in the man, the, the leader, the ruler that had just approached Jesus about his dead daughter. Now, faith is a gift from God. That dead level, rock solid, unshakable certainty that God's going to answer my prayer. God is going to grant me my petition. He's going to do it. I just know it. I just know it. And maybe there's no reasoning even behind it because Martin Luther, I believe, made this statement. And I'll paraphrase it. He said it in German and I can't speak much of it. Faith must trample underfoot all reason and logic. It has to. Faith has to trample underfoot all reason and all logic. It's not to say that reasoning is bad or that humans should not exercise reason. Reason is a function of the mind. It's a gift of God. We ought to use it. It's a faculty that he gave us, okay? But when it comes to faith, faith has to trumpet. It has, has to absolutely trump reasoning. And, and uh, what did I say? Logic as well. Now, it doesn't mean that you say, well, I've got faith that I'm going to jump off this building and fly through the air by just wiggling my fingers. Which is greater, reasoning or faith? Well, that all depends. If you don't have any faith, reasoning can probably keep you safe in some areas. But if God has told you something, if God has told you something, if he has revealed something unto you, either a specific, uh, a specific uh, will for your life, or whether it's something, uh, again, more attuned to uh, God's common will, the will, the, the common will of God for everyone's life, like salvation, Holy Spirit, baptism, sanctification, and so on. If God has revealed something to you that he wants you to do, or that he wants you to say, or that he wants you to stay away from, or not do, or not say, okay? All your human reasoning might be screaming to the contrary. But faith tramples reasoning underfoot. Faith tramples logic underfoot. But you got to make sure that that faith is rock solid. You got to be convinced that it's God. You've got to be convinced that it's God. You can't be like that one guy who was just totally convinced that God told him to run through that wall. He was in the middle of a church service somewhere, and the spirit was there, and it was good, and it was one of those, you know, it's a, it was, it was a, you know, the type of service I'm talking about. And people were praising God and the Spirit of God was moving. And that guy got that notion in his head. And he ran, he ran right at that wall. Boom! Bounced off that, bounced his noggin right off that thing. And fell flat on his back. First he said, God told me to run through that wall. And then he went and tried it. And then laying on his back, 
probably with a nice goose egg starting to form, he said, God just told me, don't you ever do that again. If it really is the voice of God, when you have quieted your heart and shoved away all the noise of the world and the voice of God has persisted, that still, small, steady, burning conviction that just sits upon your heart and will not go away, when you know that it's God, don't let reasoning undo it. Don't let human reasoning and logic and all of those things unravel your faith and your confidence in God and in what God wants you to do or what God wants you to be. Amen? So you could even take that and you could even tie that all the way back to, to the one guy coming to Jesus saying, "Let suffer me first to go bury my father. What was the lesson in that? Don't miss your divine opportunity. Well, don't let logic, okay, that was don't miss a divine opportunity for something that's comfortable and familiar. Okay, well, this is don't miss your divine opportunity for the sake of what is logical and what is reasonable. Okay, because you know what else is logic, logical and reasonable? Computers. They operate on logic. And they never deviate from the program. You know what I'm saying? The string of code, that operating system reads it, and that's what it does. And if it does deviate from it, it's because something went wrong and it crashed or froze up. You know what I'm saying? We're not computers. We're not machines. We are divine in our origin, both by design and by intent. That's the same thing, design and intent. But we're divine in our origins. And so we're much, much greater than the sum of our parts. And that's actually one of the arguments that's used to unravel atheist thinking and evolutionist thinking. It's one of the arguments that's used to unravel that is that, you know, the, the extraordinary amount of intelligence that human beings actually have is so much, for, so much beyond what is actually required to survive on planet Earth. Did you know that? The only, the only intelligence that you need is just enough to run, hide, be more cunning than a faster predator, get some food and seek some shelter when it's cold. It's about all we need to survive. It's all the animals need. It's all the animals do. But God gave us reason and lodging and intelligence to elevate us you know, far above the other beasts or the beasts of the earth. But it goes beyond that. We're divine. We're not saying that to pump us up. We're not saying that to instill pride. It's a fact. We're divine in our origins and in our design. And the only thing that keeps us from being divine through and through is the sin nature that we afflicted ourselves with way back at the beginning of this thing. So don't miss your divine opportunity by overthinking something. Ooh, that hit home. Well, it hit home with me because I'm a classic overthinker. And you end up thinking yourself right out of the will of God if you're not careful. Don't miss your divine opportunity for the sake of what is reasonable or logical. But make sure that your faith is solid. Make sure that, you're, you know, that, that it's what God wants you to do. All right, now, that being said, this woman came up to Jesus and touched him by the hem of his garment. She was filled, she was full of faith, and then she was full of healing. Jesus turned about him and said, when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort, thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table. 
Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving.